Welcome to the Evolved Nest. We talk about child development, human flourishing, morality, and society. You're welcome to follow us at www.evolvednest.org. I'm Mary Tarsha, and I'm here today with Dr. Darsha Narvaez. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. And we're talking about your newest book, one of many, but this is your newest book called Indigenous Sustainable Wisdom, First Nation Know-How for Global Flourishing. So tell us a little bit about this new and exciting book. So this was edited with Four Arrows, Eugene Halton, Brian Collier, and George Andrew Lee. Mm. comes out of a conference we had a few years ago with uh, many Native American speakers, or American Indian or First Nation, and uh, several of us who are concerned about our current dilemma and kind of crises we're facing and what to do about how to restore our sense of connection to earth and responsibility. So what crisis are you talking about? So we are facing multiple ecological crises. So uh, global warming, the climate instability, essentially global weirding is what Bill McKibben calls it. So you can see that now with the floods across the Midwest and the um, wildfires, the droughts, the uh, unpredictable weather, the um, rising sea levels, all that is part of the global warming aspect of our crises. But there are other pieces. Another one is the toxicity that's been um, just spread across the earth with the different kinds of fossil fuel um, excavations and and um, the easy way to pollute our rivers and waters. And drinking water. Waterways, well. yes, yeah. and fracking going into well water. Uh, so there's pollution everywhere. The Roundup glyphosate uh, now is being, they're being sued for cancer-causing, uh, it's cancer-causing capacities of, of that um, weed killer, which is everywhere and in our food supply now. Mm. And so we're eating it every day. And the plastics that are pretty much taking over the oceans, there's not much fish left, and the oceans will be pretty much dead by 2050. And uh, the scientists who pay attention to these things uh, are warning us that we have to do something right now. Biodiversity is also um, being destroyed. It has been for some centuries, but now it's really extreme. We'll lose a million species in the next few years. Oh, my goodness. And um, of the ones we know, because there's so many we didn't know about that have already disappeared. So we are, we've caused this by really it's, um, and this unfortunately maybe sounds political, but it's the capitalism that's taken over the planet in the last few centuries of wanting to extract everything, treat nature as an object, extract everything from it as possible to make money. Short-term benefits, Short-term benefits. Short-term benefits. But no sense of, you know, responsibility to future generations, to leave them something better than what we have. That's more of the indigenous perspective is you're always thinking forward. And that's for the long term, many generations ahead, and thinking about the well-being of all creatures, all entities on the earth. This is the way we used to all think. But in the last few hundred years, this kind of fever of... of, um, a cannibalism of life, essentially, which is called wetico in in the Native American communities. It's a um, exploitative greed that uh, can be 
captured, caught by anyone, and it seems to be caught by so many people now that they don't, they're not really aware or thinking about, they're very numb to what they're doing in the, in the long run. And to like the, an epidemic. It's an epidemic, yeah, mm-hmm. and it's already spread. So, so this is a very concerning because it's, the planet's going to survive one way or another, although we take with us as our species probably goes over the cliff, we take many other species with us. So the beautiful, um, beautifulness of nature and the endless forms most beautiful in Darwin's terms of how evolution was about, is about creating more and more diversity and more and more beauty, uh, we've gone in the other direction and we're accelerating it day by day. It's just getting worse. So that's the crises. Mm-hmm. What do we do now? And that is also... I mean, it's harmful for the next generation. It's hurting the planet, but it also hurts us right now, right? Yes, so right. that's, I mean, we're experiencing the fallout and this, the symptomatology of the epidemic every day, right? Through right. symptoms of sickness and illness, both physical and mental and uh, de- deformations and development, and the list goes on and on. Right. So trauma is part of everyone's life now. So you're being traumatized by other people trying to control you. Uh, babies being controlled at birth and mothers and mothers disempowered and um, work is more important than babies and money is more important than well-being. And it's just all twisted kind of way of being in the world with uh, this real numbness and, uh, like you said, an epidemic, a fever of that just clouds the vision, clouds wisdom. Mm-hmm. So it's really, in a sense, it's... Like we're in high gear survival mode, <laughs> right? Every day, and this affects not only our families, but everything we eat and what we do and how we live, and it's just a downward spiral. That's right, and we downshift then into our survival mode. So that's where we are controlled by our fear, our anger, our panic, and you don't think very well when that stress response kicks in. Mm-hmm. If you don't act very well, you're not going to be open-minded or open-hearted, and so that's what you see. And you can see it with parents. Parents are, are parenting as if in crisis. It's like we're in a war zone. And so then you've got to sleep, train the baby. Oh, feed them formulas. So you can have your life back so you can work. You know, that kind of attitude is like, where are we? Who are you? Mm-hmm. What are we? Where, where are we going? Mm-hmm. So people aren't asking those questions. Why do you need the latest iPhone? Why do you need a bigger house? Why do you need more cars, a yacht? Just mm-hmm. enjoy life here and now. So that that intergenerational anxiety of not feeling safe in the world, of not feeling self-confident, is replaced then with anxious striving. And so people are just striving and striving because they don't want to feel, they don't know how to feel present in the moment and cooperative and playful um, because they didn't get the good neurobiology to begin with. So mm-hmm. all this stuff is related to the early nest, mm-hmm. right, the evolved nest. And so we try to run away from that pain because we have a primal wound. We were wounded when our parents left us alone, left us alone to cry or to sleep alone. That broke the continuum of feeling safe in the world, which our species and used to have all the time. You wouldn't have a broken continuum. We, our species wouldn't have survived, um, but now we do it routinely. We break the sense of trust and security in everyone, and now we run away from feeling that deep pain, which is required to heal it, 
Um, and so we do all this other stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, um, it's hard because I think without knowing another way, it's hard to recognize and kind of reflect upon all of these things that we're talking about. So that's one of the benefits of this new book, right? Of kind of presenting, this is a new way or not really, it's an ancient way, (laughs) uh, but it's new for us uh, to be able to understand there's a different way because the cultural trend is so strong. I mean, the cultural current as you're talking about it is so strong. So what is this ancient yet new way of uh, living, thinking, and relating, right, to more sustainably? Yes, and so our um, our contributors to the book tell us different pieces about that. Penny Spikens tells us about how our ancient um, history is filled with cooperation and helpfulness and altruism, caring for uh, the wounded. You can see in the archaeological um, evidence that people were cared for. They weren't um, uh, dismissed or, you know, put out to the pasture <laughs> when they were <laughs> wounded as a child or something. And so she gives us a sense of deep cooperation. And we have uh, Barbara Alice Mann, uh, a Native American woman who is uh, talks about matrilineal society. And uh, she's a Seneca And she tells us that in the Native Americans who were here um, before the Europeans showed up were very much, um, had a different economic way of living, much more of a gift economy of cooperation and not this exploitative way of of doing economics that's been dominant in the Western world and now all over the world by force. And uh, and then Greg Cajete, Native scientist, Atewa, talks about plants and how important plants are in native science and uh, how they are vital for indigenous sustainability. He has a great book called Native Science that also links to links uh, native ways of viewing the world to quantum mechanics, that quantum meta- mechanics finally realized, oh. Caught up. <laughs> yeah, caught up with what everyone else knew for centuries before the West kind of well. uh, took over. Uh, yeah, so that things are dynamic. And what, what we bring to a situation, our perceptions create what, what happens. So when you measure things, it changes the nature of that thing. And so when you think and bring a, a framework to, to a situation, you are changing the nature of that situation. So it's really, I mean, this is in his book, um, powerful to understand that how we think and perceive and what we attend to matter for how the world is co-constructed by mm. us and we forgot that and we think it's all you know dead anyway and we're alive and we get to control and manipulate it all mm-hmm. it's also great kind of an ethical um, hallmark for science <laughs> as, as you're talking about that and important for all researchers <laughs> yeah yeah it's hard for science to deal with that because mm-hmm. they like control <laughs> mm-hmm. another chapter is by steve langdon who worked with a tlingit in uh, Alaska, and he talks about these moral obligations and spiritual relations of, of living and a very rich kind of chapter about that using integrating art and animal consciousness and uh, wise kind of community living. And then uh, Four Arrows writes about truthfulness and how that was a vital component of a virtuous life 
uh, is a vital component in the American Indian, Native American, First Nations communities. And that when the Europeans showed up, they would lie all the time. <laughs> oh my goodness! And say, "Oh well, yeah, we'll make this treaty with you," and then they break the treaty hmm. uh, over and over. And they, the Native Americans, couldn't understand what's wrong with these people, right? <laughs> so they pretty soulless, um, if because they were caught up in the fever of Wetico of greed and exploitation. The ones that came over, not everybody, but the ones that were moving across the land and exploiting and destroying, uh, were really fevered. Hmm. Uh, why would they be so so anxious and, and wanting to do such destruction? And one of the Native Americans uh, quotes um, from, uh, I think, a Frenchman's journal was uh, the, the uh, Native American said, you Frenchmen are always talking so much about your beautiful country. Why did you come over here then? Why don't you go back there? <laughs> you know, they couldn't understand why they had to be here. If they loved, they didn't have... So this rootlessness that many of those the Europeans who showed up early uh, had was kind of um, destroyed then genocidally the First Nation communities. Mm. Yeah, really about conquering and, and dominating, right? Yeah, so it's a dominance orientation to world mm. uh, domination rather than partnership. And then we have uh, John Young, uh, who writes about nature connection. He's done work um, for decades around the world in helping uh, individuals build their nature connection and learning from the native First Nation communities around the world of how that works, what it looks like, uh, and has had success healing traumatized youth, delinquents, and others who actually get back to connection with the, the earth. And, you know, that's part of what uh, our, in traditionally, uh, adolescents would have experienced in a Native American community in many ways, uh, in many cases, that they, it's really important. So the nest early on in life connects you to your caregivers and then little by little to the community and your playing in nature has a, a sense of connection there to your landscape. But in adolescence, you then also connect to the universe. You go out on a vision quest, and what's your gift? And what's your purpose in life? And you find that out by having fasted and, and being outside for three days. I mean, well, they're, anyway, being uh, unprotected in a way. And you find out that deeper connection. I think that's another thing where we're missing is that deeper nature connection that we have a purpose that's related to universe, the universe, not just to humans, um, but to the mystery of mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. And how it's all related and connected, right? That that's really fundamental and important uh, understanding that everything is connected. That's right. <laughs> not separate uh, entities like uh, cardboard cutouts that are all separate from each other. No, no, no. It's the opposite, right? Everything is connected and related. And dynamically related. So it's all changing and every moment is different. So you you come to each situation and it's a different situation. You see the, your friend again the next day. It's a different friend because we're always changing and growing. And so that's where that playfulness and learning to play and experiencing play throughout life helps you be dynamically flexible for those new things that happen all the time. 
And if you don't have that, you come to situations with your script mm-hmm. about what you can see and you only see a certain amount and you only accept a certain amount of behavior and you only can behave a certain way and you become you only very say stiff. a certain way. Yes, yes say get, certain things. Yeah, and... so you get very stiff-minded, a very stiff personality. And this, unfortunately, is what happens with harsh child-rearing. So we see this in authoritarianism, which is on the rise all over the world, uh, where harsh parenting is is usually what's asked about. You know, do you spank your children? You think children should be spanked. But it's also a signal that a whole bunch of other things didn't happen, the responsiveness, right, that you need to grow well. And so with an authoritarian orientation, you develop an authoritarian personality. It's very rigid. It's hierarchical. It's dominance or submission. If you're not dominant, then you're being submissive, mm. and that's bad, and it's dangerous, mm. and scary, and you're going to die, right? Mm. So this authoritarianism is such a, a deep thing, then, that gets embedded in the personality, and it's inflexible. Mm. So it's different than um, one of egalitarianism and equality, where there are two equals coming together and sharing and dynamically related, that it's either about... Um, as you talk about one up or one down, so you're either dominating or being submissive, right? And having those scripts, I think that's, uh, we're seeing that more and more. So then if someone goes off the script, oh my gosh, this is chaos, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is crisis. This is fearful rather than having a dynamic relational attunement taking place. And the ones off the script are evil because <laughs> oh they gosh. scare me and mm. you externalize that. Instead of saying, oh, I'm feeling discomfort, I'm feeling uh, afraid, um, you criminalize the other. Yes, it's them that that are the Hmm. problem rather than your inability to be flexible and attuned. So multicultural capacities are related here. So what when I used to teach multicultural education courses, uh, I told the students what you have to do is get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Hmm. And so that means you come to a situation, you don't know what's going on because this is a different culture. You know, they're standing really close to me and I'm feeling kind of weird about it. You don't blame them. You just, you just take it in and you learn what's normal in that situation. And you learn to actually do the what they do, right, without judgmentalness. It's the openness. So it's it's kind of a, the receptive, holistic attention, which is right hemisphere-driven so the capacities of the right hemisphere, which are shaped in early life, initiated at least in early life, are the ones that guide us to be flexible and open. And if you don't have that, you're going to be more tuned into what we foster in our schools, focused attention on this one thing hmm. and filtering everything else out. You know, the child in the schools assume to not, don't look out the window and pay attention to the bird. No. <laughs> Do your test, you know. Write this sentence, whatever it is. And so it's um, that narrow, focused attention is what they practice and practice in school over and over and over. And they forget that open, holistic, relational attunement, which is part of living on the earth and being connected and being uh, able to be receptively intelligent to the natural world. So would you say it's safe to say having that heightened awareness or more expanded awareness, is it safe to say that you see things differently? Absolutely. Is it safe to say things you perceive different things? Yes, than... yes. Ian McGilchrist in his book, The Master and His Emissary, uh, 
he talks about the different, he goes through all the research on contrasting right hemisphere and left hemisphere studies where they numb one side of the brain and what what, uh, each one is attuned to. And it's the right hemisphere that has this holistic openness and awareness of energy exchange, et cetera. And the left hemisphere likes dead things and likes static categorization. And so reading that book is quite enlightening. Uh, And so it's really... Uh, apparent that he points out that the left hemisphere dominance has taken over the Western world, and mm. that's what's then taken over the globalization approach that we see today. It's that inability to be flexible, the inability to be open and receptive, and just tuned into what you want to do in the moment, right? It's very static, dead. Um, and English language contributes to that because our instead of saying tree being, we say tree Native American languages say tree being, so you know it's alive. It's part of a living earth. But all sorts of things have contributed to our inability to see life now and to respect and honor life. Hmm. That's really powerful. Well, thank you so much for explaining a different way of living and being and thinking. And um, I know that certainly challenges me and I'm sure uh, is helpful to others as well. Thank you for joining us and we look forward to being with you next time.